Welcome to A Matter of Principles, a podcast of the Association of Washington School Principals. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Arend, Associate Director with the Professional Learning Team here at AWSP. We are excited to bring you Inclusion 360, a special podcast series that will bring the inclusion discussion full circle. Inclusion 360 is the culminating event wrapping up our year of learning, exploring, and implementing inclusionary best practices and diving deep into how to be an inclusionary leader. This work has been made possible by a generous grant from OSPI. Our AWSP team has assembled some of the most dynamic and sought after inclusion experts in the country to bring you this series. This podcast series will feature Ladera Korn, Keith Jones, Dan Habib, Lauren Katzman, Alfredo Artiles, and Glenna Gallo. Enjoy this podcast series. Well, good afternoon. I'm Chris Esplin, Associate Director and Lead for the Inclusionary Practices Project Grant for the Association of Washington School Principals. And I'd like to welcome you today to our live webinar, Inclusion 360, bringing the inclusion conversation full circle. Inclusion has been a crucial professional learning focus for school leaders in Washington for the past two years and will continue to be critical as we move our school communities forward into the opportunities and challenges ahead. As this unique school year draws to a close, we're bringing the inclusion conversation full circle with a robust discussion with national inclusion experts and advocates. Speakers today include Dan Habib, Samuel Habib, Keith Jones, Dr. Lauren Katzman, Ladera Korn, and Dr. Alfredo Artiles. No matter where you are in your inclusionary journey, this webinar will provide multiple entry points for engaging in and expanding on inclusion and inclusionary practices. Before we start, I would like to take time to acknowledge that we are on the traditional lands of the First Peoples past and present. We recognize that no matter where each of us is at this particular moment, we are on the traditional homelands and unceded territories of indigenous peoples and sovereign nations across the globe. As such, in honoring recognition and reflection, we are called to take action to practice seventh generation thinking and caring for the land and the people. So we invite you to reflect on whose land you are on and how will you use today's learning on inclusionary leadership to take actual steps to impact your students in your community right now in service of the generations to come. I'd also like to name that the Association of Washington School Principals and the Association of Washington Student Leaders mission of centering justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in service of identifying and actively dismantling systems that have historically oppressed and subjugated persons, especially persons of color, both students and adults, as the core of our work. We are walking through this journey within our organizations and with our members, and we welcome all to join us as we collectively build our understanding and advocacy to actively become anti-racist student and adult leaders. I would also like to share about who is present in our space, our agenda, and ways you can actively engage today as a learner. And with that, I would like to start off with um, getting our voices of our panelists into the into the space, and we're going to begin with Dr. Alfredo Artiles. Welcome, Alfredo. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. I'm honored to be part of this conversation, and I look forward to the conversation. Uh, we, I, I had some issues with sound, so did you invite me to make an opening statement? Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, I'm uh, excited to be part of this conversation uh, because of the work that we have been doing for for almost three decades now to uh, engage issues of difference and enhance opportunities for students of all backgrounds through inclusive education systems. As we know, inclusive education started with incredible aspirations to change uh, educational systems around the world. Uh, multiple forms of difference were included in that original conceptualization. And over time, we have seen how inclusive education has become increasingly focused on students with special needs and disabilities. Um, I'm excited to continue that, but I want us to keep in mind the original promise of inclusive education, that it's about all kinds of differences and that it is critical that we think about inclusive education, not 
as the mere transfer of students with any kind of need, whether it's a disability or other forms of uh, needs, uh, from one space to another, which is something that we tend to see in discussions and practices of inclusive education. Inclusion is not always a location. It's about systems of supports and how we embrace very specific uh, assumptions and values to expand opportunity for all learners. So I want to stress this idea that inclusive education is about transforming systems to be responsive to differences. Thank you. Lauren? Hi, thank you all for having me. This is an amazing group of people. Um, my name is Lauren Katzman, and I'm the executive director of the Urban Collaborative, which is an organization of about 100 school districts across the country, working as a professional learning community. And I'm also an associate research professor at ASU. Um, one question we had is, what does inclusion mean to me? I want to say, I want to build on what Alfredo just said. If I think of diversity as the presence of difference, and I think of equity as promoting justice, inclusion would be the act of creating those environments that every, where everybody feels welcomed. Um, we were also supposed to bring an artifact. So that's my artifact, my background. That is a school building in San Diego. And the other artifact is this group here, because I've worked with almost everybody here for years. And this is research, practice, the arts, policy, all right here. And that's what we need to create this, um, this level of change. Thank you. I love that. Keith? Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Keith Jones. And before I start, I want to profusely apologize if you hear random dogs barking in the background, we are still coming out of our post-COVID uh, hibernation. So please don't call the ASPCA. Um, my name is Keith Jones. I am an activist advocate, uh, policy wonk. Uh, my artifact is myself as well as the passion uh, for this change in terms of inclusion, uh, not, to, not to be redundant, but it is diversity. It is the location. It is who is present for students to understand that if you show up intentionally in the space for education, that you are coming um, with a broader vision and hoping to impart information and knowledge so that human at the end of that exchange, not only is enriched for themselves, but better for society. So that's what I hope that we can have this discussion on today. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Uh, Dan? Hi, everybody. I'm Dan Habib. I'm a documentary filmmaker and project director at the Institute on Disability at the University of New Hampshire. Um, I think it's, it's helpful to talk about what we mean by disability when we start a conversation like this. And I have a, a really great friend and colleague, Mike Waymeyer at Kansas, who talks about disability being the gap between a person's abilities and the demands of their environment. And so the, the artifact I want to share is a picture Two pictures. The first one is of Samuel, who's joining us here in a minute, my son in Cooperstown, New York. Now, this environment is not a very accessible environment, as you can see from these steps. So the gap between Samuel's abilities using a wheelchair and the environment is great. And then you switch to an environment like Concord, New Hampshire, where we live, where they've completely redesigned downtown to make it completely barrier-free and accessible. The disability has shrunk, or at least the ramifications of disability. So what I guess what I would say is if we can look at education is how do we shrink that gap through universal design for learning, through differentiated instruction, through positive behavioral supports, through peers working with each other, through physically accessible schools and classrooms, the disability becomes less of a barrier to education the more we can put these effective practices in place. So happy to be here with this incredible panel of friends and colleagues and uh, excited for the conversation. Thank you, Dan, and welcome, Samuel. Uh, Samuel's prepared a quick update on his adult life he'd like to share. So uh, be sure to watch the video version on, your, uh, on our website if you're just listening in today. So we're gonna go ahead and... Hello, everybody. I'm Samuel. I have an older brother named Isaiah. He's so funny. This is my service dog, Proton. He comes to doctor appointments and on vacations with us. And when we are out in public, he's a great wingman. I'm a student at the local community college. Right now, my career plan is to be a documentary filmmaker. I'm a huge NASCAR fan. 
At one race at the New Hampshire Motor Speedway I met my favorite driver, Kevin Harvick. I decided to do deep brain stimulation which has stopped my uncontrollable movements. Before the surgery, when I got excited, my body would get really wiggly. Now, my body is calm. DBS helped me be able to get a tattoo of the Boston Red Sox B on my arm. I really don't mind having a disability. I just wish I didn't have so many doctor's appointments and IVs, and that the world was totally wheelchair accessible, especially my friends' homes. I also hate when people talk to me like I'm a three-year-old because I use a communication device and a wheelchair. The positive thing about having a disability is that I have an awesome team every day. I also like being part of the disability community. Well, thank you, Samuel. And lastly, Lederick. Hi, everybody. I'm Lederick Horn, uh, broadcasting from New Jersey today. Um, also very excited to be a part of this group. Uh, I come to this work as a person with a disability, someone with a learning disability that uh, passed through special education for most of my education um, and then went on to college. And um, my artifact is actually this, this poster that's, I'm gonna pan this without trying to knock this over, this Dare to Dream poster. Um, while I was a college student, after passing through a bunch of support programs for students with disabilities, I got kind of recruited from the New Jersey Department of Education to start empowering young people. Um, and I, for me, a big part of the work of inclusion is also about empowering not only educators to uh, implement better practices uh, or uh, leaders to come up with better policies, but it's also about empowering and strengthening the voices of young people with disabilities. So I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. So at this point, we're gonna go ahead and um, dive right into our discussion. And um, Samuel, I'm gonna go ahead and toss this one to you. You're gonna start us off with the first question. Why are students with disabilities still so segregated in many schools? And this is open to the whole panel. I'll go ahead and start. Um, I think that students with disabilities are still segregated. And thank you for the question, Samuel. I think there's two reasons. I mean, there's many more, but the two reasons that, that rise to the top for me are lack of vision and lack of logic. I think people can't see um, a community that, that respects all. Nobody is inferior, nobody is superior. I think it, as a country, we can't see that. And so I, I think our schools are microcosms of our country. And so I think we just can't see it. Once you can see it and you can see that it works, I think people embrace it. And I think that changes people's minds. I also think logic comes into play. When people hear special education, it seems like logic flies out the window and you think you can't do anything. And um, I mean, does, does it make sense to have a group of students who don't have expressive language together with other students who don't have expressive language to grow their language? Does it make sense to have a bunch of kids who have behavioral issues together with kids who have behavioral issues? Does it make sense for that group to be all black boys? There's logic involved in that. And if you can see it, just trust your logic. Those, those aren't right. That doesn't make sense. Um, so, that's what I would say. Vision and logic are the two things that stand out to me right now. I think there's, um, uh, and again, thank you, uh, uh, Sammy, for that question. I think that there's also a certain degree of uh, uh, historical and organizational momentum that uh, we just kind of keep doing the things that we've been doing. Um, and that's true uh, for many of our systems and certainly true for our, our educational system. Um, you know, this past year is uh, all of us were um, you know, rising up and asking for police reform. I was doing deep dives and I remember seeing a lecture from an attorney and one of the ways that he phrased uh, like the current state of the criminal justice system by saying that, you know, like it's not our fault. Like this is what we've all inherited and all of us have inherited it. So like, we don't necessarily need to get, I mean, like the, the, there's value in kind of saying, here's how we came to be, but it's not necessarily about fault and more about who's going to take responsibility because we all have responsibility now given the past to say what is the future we want and we all have to be uh, all hands on deck to work to make that future happen uh this is keith um i will just say that i think one of the reasons that students are still segregated 
uh, just some experience is, it's an old adage, but for the grace of God, there go I. I think it's the reflection of people's internal insecurities about what they, if I was in that situation, I don't know how I could. And then they project that on the students. I think the challenge for me is having a discussion about education with people who are in charge of education and having to convince them that other humans are worthy of being educated. It just, it just, for me, it's one of those things. It's like segregation is a choice. And it's not a choice by those who are being segregated. It's by those who have the power to do the segregation. And then the question is not who is being segregated as much as to why. Why are we segregated because of our human condition or because of our ability to communicate or the fashion in which we communicate, or in my case, in the fashion in, the fashion in which I write or the way I mobilize or, or move in certain spaces. So I think for education, the challenge then becomes, you know, do you want to be reflective of the worst parts of our aspect of our humanity or the best parts? And I think if you come to education consciously, I think you are hoping to have the best parts, but we'll see whether or not we can actually move past that. Thanks, Keith. Samuel, great question. You always get right to the heart of the matter. So thank you for doing that. This is Dan, your dad. Um, so I think that the, the, the real issue, one huge issue I see is that we have these separate systems that have been around a long time, special education and regular education. And it's really hard to take apart existing systems in, a, in any part of society. Um, and the, the reality is that the path of least resistance in, in many ways is to keep kids with disabilities segregated. It's actually easier for a lot of administrators uh, to not create truly inclusive integrated classrooms and give students with disabilities the support they need to succeed. The problem is that when you do that, you have two major outcomes. One is that you deprive all the quote unquote typical students of true diversity in our society, which is of people with and without disabilities together. And you also are undermining the success of students with disabilities because we know from decades of research that inclusive education results in better outcomes for students with disabilities when it comes to higher education opportunities, employment, transitioning to adulthood, academic achievement, behavior, communication. So there's, there's absolutely no reason we should keep those systems intact, but it's gonna take, it continues to take a lot of work to dismantle them. And I'll leave some, some time for anybody else who wants to speak. Thank you, Dan. Um, I agree with everything that my colleagues have said. In addition to that, I would like to add that one of the key reasons for the segregation we see for students with disabilities is that the way we think about education is based on the assumption of a standard human being. We have the illusion that there is a universal standard way of defining who is a human being and what should fit in that vision. When we look at the assumptions we make about that standard human being, people with disabilities have not been included. And for that reason, they're considered, quote, different. And the problem is then that whatever is considered different, it's um, assumed that they should not be included in whatever is constructed for individuals that are the so-called standard human beings. And historically, we know that people with disabilities have been justifiably segregated and discriminated against. There is a lot of evidence of that. That it is okay, has been okay for systems, individuals, policies. It is justifiable to treat disabled people unequally. And there has been impunity about that. There is no reaction to it. And unfortunately, something that has continued to be done over the years. So what, what we need to remember is that Whenever we make decisions about who is different, who doesn't fit in that vision of the universal human being, it's always a comparative exercise. Who you are different from is something that we never ask. And then the moment we ask the question, we need to be re uh, reminding people that the assumptions we make about what fits in that standard view is, not, is only an illusion. That once you begin to see people's experiences, we're all enveloped with differences and needs and lacks, as well as assets and qualities. So demolishing the idea of the universal human being, of the standard person is something that is critical for us to begin to 
uh, pushback in this practice of segregating people with disabilities from uh, institutional and community lives. So and this kind of came up a little bit in your responses, but I'm wondering if we can dig a little bit more into, you know, what are the implications of historical legacies of race, gender, sexual orientation, and class uh, on educational disparities? And I'm wondering, you know, maybe Lauren or Alfredo, Keith, you can kind of speak to that. So I want to first say, and I saw one of the, of the comments in the chat, um, there are a lot of people on this webinar and across the country, my members who are doing amazing work. This is, and everything we're talking about here is, is about the bigger system, but that does not deny that there are some many, many, many district leaders, administrators doing amazing work. And I know a lot of them are on this call. So thank you for that. I wanna start there. But in terms of the historical legacies, we come to the schools with that. We, this is what we are um, dealt. This is the hand we're dealt. So I would say that Schools are a microcosm of our society. Special education and desegregation, racial desegregation, they've always been intertwined. They started at the same time. They've been intertwined the entire time. Um, there's no, I mean, when special education started, it was a nice place for us to segregate black boys into special ed classrooms. Um, we have a major issue with prisons in this country. We are overpopulated with prisons. It's no surprise that we have a school to prison pipeline and our, in our prison populations, we have boys of color, school to prison pipeline, boys of color. I mean, prisons are built on a local third grade reading score. So we're microcosms of the, uh, of the environment we're in. And so special ed is a piece of that. Um, but at the same time, there are positive things where there are protections for equity, there are people who care deeply. So we are, we are dealt an incredibly complex hand here on how to deal with this. But if we don't understand our history and we don't take it into consideration with our decision-making, we, um, we are not giving special education its due, which is, means it's a civil rights legislation. Thanks, Lauren. Um, I think this is a critical question that we have not asked often enough in education. What are the implications of historical legacies of race, gender, sexual orientation, and class, as well as disability? And when we hear the question, we tend to assume that this is a technical problem, that this is something we need to deal with in education as if it's an issue of multiple demographic markers, that it happens to be about people's traits and how certain individuals may have predispositions, prejudices against individuals of different gender, sexual orientation, class and race and disability, et cetera. Um, I, I think it's, it's a fallacy. I think we should remind all of us that this is not a purely technical problem, that the, the, the historical legacies of race are also about stratifying groups in society, that we need to uh, be reminded of the fact that these things, these intersections and the consequences of the intersections that bring about inequalities, limit access to opportunities and resources are happening everywhere in society. As, as Lauren said, this is a microcosm of what's happening elsewhere. So you look at the polarization and economic and racial inequality we've witnessed in the US in the last number of decades. The fact that we have created policies to address certain kinds of difference and we end up discriminating other groups connected to those differences. For example, the racialization of disability. We created special education and inclusive education to serve civil rights needs of people with disabilities. And in the end, depending on how you use that, you may end up using special education for segregating racialized groups. So we create all these paradoxes. And the, the key message for me is that it has consequences to continue to perpetuate the stratification of certain groups in society to keep them on the margins. And so that as you see certain intersections, say disability, race, and class, uh, you, you begin to see the connections to the criminal justice issue that Lauren mentioned a minute ago, how it's connected to issues of discipline and access to higher education and jobs, et cetera. So the question is one of cultural history, not one of diagnostic precision. And this is something that we have to put in, in, on the table that the historical concern is about 
the way we have set up opportunities for all groups in society. Yes, and this is Keith. Um, I think when we talk about the historical um, ramifications of what and why, I think we have to understand that it, it started at the very essence of um, defining what America would be. It's codified in our, it's codified in the Declaration of Independence, it's codified in the Constitution, it's codified in the vacancy laws. The, the, the new catchphrase now is that we're doing Jim Crow 2.0, for those of us who understand what Jim Crow is, this is version 39, this is not new, um, but the historical legacy is that people tend to revert to the mean, meaning they tend to go back to what is comfortable for them. And in education, the historical legacy, whether you're a person with a disability, particularly a person with a disability, and a person with a disability of a particular ethnic group, whether you're First Nation, whether you're a descendant of a stolen African, or your migrant workers from Asia to build the railroads, those, all of those um, groups that came to this country were stamped in preconceived. Those legacies were codified into the way education has been dealt. Those legacies are now historically are, are sharing that, showing their faces in terms of what are the graduation rates, what are the attainment rates. Uh, if you can look at a city's map, and look at a zip code and judge a child's future. That's not because the child or the family said, this is what we want. That is a pattern and a practice that has an intentional outcome that people are seeking. So I think the, 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 the long-term, the, the residual effect is that people tend to go, oh, well, you know, they always are like that. And it's an easy out versus saying, you know, those who know history, who ignore it are doomed to repeat it. And so here's an opportunity to understand, particularly at this moment in American history, that racism, xenophobia, denial of First Nation, and any other isms or phobias that you might have are not a product of the groups who are at the expense of it, but a way to maintain a stratified power. And the question is why? I'll say a few things, and Lederick, uh, I'm sure we'll have some things to say as well. I, you know, I think that based piling on to what everybody else has said, because people with disabilities have been marginalized, and their families have been marginalized, and people with disabilities of color have been particularly marginalized, we need to make our schools and special education as a whole more welcoming to families, and we need to go out of our way to do that. And some ways that I think is really critical is that students with disabilities should start in a regular classroom with the supports they need to be successful. And that's just the law, that's least restrictive environment within IDEA, uh, but that's also high expectations. You know, and people with disabilities are subjected to low expectations most of the time. You know, students with disabilities should be on our diploma track. Students with disabilities should be, you know, um, part of their IEP meetings and helping to lead their IEP meetings. Uh, students with disabilities should be able to go to meetings with their families at times that work for the families. These are all things that families don't experience enough. And they also experience all, too often, I think, a deficit-based approach to the education, identifying all the, all the things they're flailing at or failing at, not strengths that could be built off of. So there's so much more to say about this, but I just think it's critical that, that families uh, feel welcome in the process and students feel welcome in the process. Lederick. Sorry, I've been vibing, enjoying everybody's responses. I don't remember what the original question was, so I want to make sure my response is on point. <laughs> what was the original question? And then I'll, I'll put my two cents. So really just kind of thinking about the influence and conceptualization. So you know, I think Dan's been on it was how can we think about shifting that legacy that we're holding and kind of come at it from you know the lens of either education educational practices and programs or school family community partnerships like what what are those things to consider um in that shift well you know the um i think there are like multiple fronts that we need to fight right and one of them is is how we prepare teachers and i think maybe some of us has touched on that already you know the teacher preparation programs you know where you can have someone pass through um be highly qualified. And really for most folks, that just means they're, they're prepared to be able to educate someone who's just like them, right? As far as their ethnic background, maybe even gender, economic status and that sort of thing. And um, I think uh, for the 
school administrators, the, the leaders that I've really seen that have really embraced in, inclusive practices, part of what they do is they understand that that is a reality. And then they invest in an additional education for their for their staff, right? Like, what do we need to do to make sure that we're prepared to work with the students who are in front of us? And that really is, you know, also requires taking time to really understand your student population in, in general, as well as the individual who you're, who you're looking to support. Um, and then being willing to just, to, you know, to draw on whatever resources you need, whatever coaching, um, you know, taking part in events like this to, to, to help close that, that gap and that it's, something that I think we all kind of have to work at. You know, it's like being a, an athlete, right? You constantly have to practice. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. And, you know, I'd love to ask Samuel this question to kind of round out our conversation today um, in terms of, you know, so Samuel, what did your teachers do in high school and college to create access for your education? During high school, I like to work on class assignments with my friends. I always have my Toby device for school and academic communication. The teachers for each of my classes gave me a list of key vocabulary for each unit ahead of time for my Toby communication device. That way I can use the words for homework, tests, and contributing to class discussions. Since freshman year, I have helped to lead our team IEP check-in meetings with the PowerPoint that I would make in advance with my special education coordinator. Each of my teachers would talk about what is going well and what could be improved. Thank you for that, Sam. Um, that really helps to paint pictures, I think, and oftentimes we need those visuals of what is going well and, and the strengths that they're building for you and, and capitalizing that you have. So thank you for that. So I wanna shift our conversation into this kind of futurity visioning and thinking about, um, you know, thinking about the future ahead, what haven't we shared or you haven't shared today that you'd like to share that would be a recommendation either for leaders on creating that inclusive education for learners with disabilities into the 21st uh, century. Like what could that futurity really look like, uh, feel like, sound like? Um, and so we're going to go ahead and go around the horn and why don't we um, start off with you, Alfredo, or um, and put your voice in on that. What, what are you thinking about? Future visioning, right? <clears throat> Critical question because oftentimes we stop looking ahead, crafting visions that will guide our practices and our investments today. Sometimes we just get caught up in the moment of getting through the day or the week of the month. But you know, that's the key question. What are we aspiring to achieve? Where are we headed? And we mentioned, several of our colleagues mentioned already the critical role of history. You know, inclusive education communities should always be engaged in historical thinking. What is the history of um, engagement with communities with disabilities in this city, in this community, in this school district, at this school? What do we know about the way race and class have been interconnected with disability? Are we expanding opportunities for those individuals? Are there differences in the way individuals who live at different intersections getting as a result of being involved in inclusive education or not? Are we using a language, I think Dan alluded to this, a language of deficit? Are we only focusing on telling what is missing in the students' and families' experiences? Are we just looking at profiles of things that need to be fixed? So history matters. We need to have that imagination guiding our visions. We need to amplify a language of possibility. What can these communities, families, children, students do? in addition to what they need? Are the students only encapsulated in the results of those assessments? Can we begin to think about how to represent the experiences of students in new ways, in alternative ways? Am I only a Latino man with a learning disability from a specific social class? Or are there different things that you can gather and, and find out about me that will also project who I am. So thinking about the way we represent individuals and families and communities is critical. Can we expand that? 
And finally, are the interventions, the strategies, the pedagogies, the curricula that we're using in schools informed by multiple points of view, multiple experiences? We have a long-standing legacy in special education of a colorblind or color evasive approach to producing knowledge. Most of the time, the samples included in those studies do not include students with diverse backgrounds. So we need to be mindful of that. Leaders, practitioners, professionals, teachers need to remember that the knowledge we're trying to use oftentimes is not informed by the experiences of different communities. And we need to challenge this color evasive approach to the use of knowledge. So those are some of the things that come to mind, Chris. <clears throat> Thank you, Alfredo. Lauren? Sure. Um, speaking as a previous administrator, talking to administrators, I would say the first thing is to have a vision. I've been in too many districts and too many schools where the focus is on compliance and timelines as opposed to having a vision. And I wish for leaders that they can pull themselves out of the day-to-day so they can spend time moving forward because special education is always, um, there are always red flags, there's always things to be dealing with, there are always emergencies. But if some people, some people in the district of the school can get out of that and be able to push forward, I think that's a game changer. I would also say, create a school that you wanna send your own children. If you, can send, if you feel confident sending your own children there, I think that might be a great school. I would say, um, I would say ask students. If we have a vision, we need to have the students voice and the students know what they want. They know what they need, ask them. Let, them, let their voice be heard. And um, in concurring with what Alfredo said, I definitely keep history and current environment in mind when making decisions about students. I mean, we have a civil rights history we have a current issue with imprisonment. We have a current issue with police shootings. 50% of police shootings are people with disabilities. We are also in a pandemic. Um, I keep hearing people talk about, we're gonna make up this time. It's a worldwide pandemic. It's intense and everybody in the world has dealt with it. And so we just have to know where we sit. We are a traumatized world right now, um, but that doesn't mean that when people come back to schools, that we're going to call everybody who has trauma a person with a disability. When people come back to schools and they're acting out because they've been sitting in their room or on the computer for a year, let's not suspend them. Let's not, you know, let's not um, do more harm. So my vision is to create an environment that you know is right, you know in your gut is right. And, um, but have all the knowledge, have historical knowledge, have current environment knowledge. Um, as you're making those decisions. So that was just adding to this. Thank you. All right, uh, that's a loaded question. I'm sort of like the, the crazy radical on the group. So I'm going to put that head on the word proudly. Um, there's a couple of things. I think, in again, we're talking about education in an intentional space. So you, you chose to be a teacher. You chose to build a career in education. You chose to be an administrator. So the question I ask, uh, when I talk to teachers, it's real simple. Why do you educate? Why do you get up every morning in order to go deal with somebody else's children? Why do you get up every morning and want to impart education? But we cannot forget that education, at least in this country and throughout history, has been political. And understand what that political context is. Why is it that we needed to have Brown versus Board of Education? Why is it that we needed IDEA? Why do we need 766? Why do we need 504? In order to get educators to just want to educate students, regardless of where they are in their human condition scale, whether they have complex medical needs, hidden disabilities, behavioral issues, you, you show up in this space for a reason. If, if your reason, whether you're conscious or unconscious, I'm a firm believer that unconscious bias is an easy way out because people go, I didn't know that I didn't like you because I didn't like you. Yes, you do. And so the future would be to say, coming out of a global pandemic or even in the midst of the pandemic, if it is showing you nothing, that our, our humanity is frail and fragile 
and that those who appreciate the entirety of any student's humanity, whether they are trans, bi, whether they're black, whether they're white, whatever miss, whatever handle they're given to in order for you to operate with that student, understand they're the end user because you are a teacher or an administrator, you get a paycheck, you get to go home. These kids and these students and these families are on their journey. Will you be, as I like to say, the launching pad or the brick wall? So future for me is that everybody understands that the school is the place where you can come in and understand that your humanity is valued. Your access to information is not based upon whether you twitch or you drool or you stem or you walk a different way that is based upon the fact that the people who are in charge of imparting that education upon you value your humanity above all. And they give you every tool necessary in order for you to value your humanity and for you to reach your greatest potential. We do better when we all do better. It's cheesy, it's corny, but it's fact. If you turn out brilliant students, you don't have to worry down the road. You don't have to worry about the term prison to pipeline, pipeline to prison. You don't have to worry about the terms disparities because you are meeting them at the door and saying wherever you come from, your identity, however you see yourself, we value that. Our goal in this space is to underpin whatever you need in terms of education and support to get you to the next stage of your human existence as best as we can. That would be idealistic for future. That the, but that would require administrators and teachers and everybody to step back and say, who is the end user? Because everybody making decisions are the people who get paychecks. The people who are at the end of the pipeline are the ones who have to deal with the consequences. So that would be my future. Thank you so much, Keith. Lederick? You know, and, and just sort of thinking about this question of a future vision, um, I was, I'm thinking back to my own experience and facing graduation and just being terrified, you know, as a young man, because I really didn't know what was available for me later on. And, um, you know, one of the things I love so much about this panel is that the, the presence of the artists. And I do believe, you know, as an artist, that part of our role in society historically has been to help give people a vision for what is possible, you know, so um, you know, I'm seeing some of the questions coming in the chat about how do we sort of show educators what's possible? How do we show families and young people how, uh, what empowerment looks like? You know, part of that is, you know, like Dan's on here for a reason, right? Keith's on here for, like, you know, it's, it's being able to help paint a picture, whether it be with film or words, storytelling, um, of, of what is possible. And the, the great thing about this is that it's not science fiction, right? We don't have to create some, some you know, imaginary alien society. There are pockets of excellence all over our nation, all over your state. And you know, one of the ways I think in which we, and I learned this very early on, you know, working with folks in the state of, of uh, 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 Department of Ed here in New Jersey is we really need to celebrate the people who are doing the work that we want to exemplify. And I mean, celebrate in your school, homecoming, in front of everybody, here's the plaque and say why, right? Like, because they're doing the kind of work that we want to, we want to support. Um, you know, and, 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 and so much of this work, and I think, it, I think it's, I said it in the podcast, is around using cultural tools to shift the culture of an institution or the culture of, uh, of a community. Um, and so I think the arts, the arts also have a very strong role in doing all this work. Uh, it's great that Lederick was just talking about culture, because I was just thinking about the importance in our future of seeing disability as a culture. And I don't think the majority of the public sees that. And I remember when Sam was very young, we got to meet the great disability advocate, Norman Kuntz, who lives out in Vancouver, Canada. And he said to us, if you gave me a pill to take away my cerebral palsy, I would not take it because I like who I am. I like being a person with a disability and being the parent of a three-year-old child with cerebral palsy, that just blew my mind and gave me such a beautiful vision for the future. And then meeting people like Keith Jones, who, you know, Samuel got to know and has been a mentor for a long time as another adult with CP was really powerful for him. So I think that we need to embed the fact that disability is part of our culture in our school curriculum you know, by, by building it through bringing people with disabilities into your schools to speak to the students, 
you know, to all students, not just kids with disabilities, to bring to bringing movies like Crip Camp, a great movie that some friends of mine made to, to your community. Um, you know, and, and I think that once you see disability as a culture, just like other cultures that Keith was talking about earlier, you emphasize this is critical to our diversity. This is critical to becoming a fully formed human being, to be exposed to all different aspects of culture, including disability, and to segregate kids with disabilities is very damaging to students without disabilities because you're creating this artificial bubble that does not represent the true diversity of our society. So that's the future I want to see is that disability is, part, is naturally part of our diversity in all aspects of life. I think Samuel might be up next. Yeah, you're right. Thank you, Dan. Samuel? Let me take him just a second. There he goes. Uh, Do you have a question for him, Chris? Uh, or, is he, or are you ready to go, Samuel? I'm not sure. <laughs> go for it, man. What's your vision of the future? Being in a regular classroom helped me make friends, learn interesting material, learn about my rights, and prepared me for my transition to adulthood. It also helped me meet girls. I want everyone to know that people with disabilities demand respect and rights. Thank you, Samuel. Well said. <laughs> I remember the days, right? <laughs> Back when. Well said is right. Thank you. So at this point, um, we've had a lot to think about. Our panelists have um, really provided some really rich thoughts. There's some questions that have been coming in. And so we're going to take a minute here and address some of these questions. We may not get to all of them, but we're sure going to try to get to at least a few of them. So one of them, and this is open to the whole panel, um, one of the questions that came in was, how can we support parents to be strong advocates for their children? Uh, this is Keith. I'll take a stab at it first. Uh, I think this goes to, for the administrators and for the teachers on this line, um, it's the school parental relationship with the partnership versus an adversary. Um, I understand that there are state guidelines and compliances, but the way you make a good advocate as a parent is to show them that you're invested in their child as well, that you want not just what's best for the outcome of the class, but what's best for the student and getting investment. My mother um, was probably the great A advocate that I ever had but she did it because she had to and she had to fight versus having a partnership. So maybe rethinking that parents are not adversaries, even though they may show up and be wild and sometimes, but they are, but we are, again, what are we here for? The end user is the student. So this needs to be a healthy partnership, not only between the student and the administrator, but the students and the families. So one of the ways is just make your, make your school welcoming to the community, make it a part of the community, make it open, make it seem like you actually really care. And that will, you'll see how humans react when they know you have the best in interest and not only just an interest in trying to get to where you need to be, but putting their child in the best position. That's probably one of the easier ways to teach parents how to be a better advocate. I can, if I can add on uh, Keith's point, um, and just a practical example that I, I remember seeing in uh, one of the states that I worked in was that there was a school district, it was actually an entire region that uh, as parents were passing through the system and, and were working with the school with their, their you know, and these are parents who had kids with disabilities. These, these parents were looked at as supports for other families. And so they actually had a team, a group of, of, of parents. And when there was someone who was newly diagnosed or someone that came in from outside of the district, they showed up, right, and, and were like, hey, here's what you need to know. Um, and so it was this, um, um, uh, instead of reactionary, you know, uh, taking a step forward before it became a problem and helping to forge that relationship. And I think so much of this information is, is you know, it's, when it comes to this sort of change, it's, it's sometimes really about the, the messenger, right? And, and you know, and, and, and like Keith is saying, and if you've already done the groundwork to say parents' voices are important and we have a liaison to help to help work with you and help give you some of those key, those skills and some of the sort of cultural uh, norms for how things are done in this in this area. It also shows that that new person that the, the school and the community has made an investment in them. Um, and, and, and again, it's just a sign of respect that I think so many of us are looking for. I just want to reiterate um, Keith and Derek's message as well in answering this question. Um, 
I think one of the key points to keep in mind is that parents are the reason why these systems exist. They are there because families need schools and educational systems. So it's, it's an important reminder for families and parents, you know, all of this is there because of you. They were created to address your needs and your dreams. So it's important to be in touch with that fact. The other thing that we need to remember is that parents, families have been the engine of change in the history of inclusive education in the world. When parents organize and require responses, things happen. The same happens when students do the same, especially in middle and high school levels. So we as parents embody the power to make change when we remember that we can do that because there is historical proof of it. And the final thing I just want to reiterate with Eric's point, respect is everything for me. We need as parents to require and expect respect because we deserve it. It's important to be treated with dignity. It's important to have the respect of others to be present with us. We need to be respected to be listened to. So respect is everything. We need to expect that. And if we don't get it, to require it because we uh, are entitled to do that. Wow, thank you all for that. Um, so we have time probably for one more question. And one of the things that the audience was asking about is might you talk about some tough mindset shifts you've been able um, to witness with teachers moving from those kids to my kids or our kids. So I'm wondering, Dan, if you could um, highlight that and maybe Lauren, you could follow that up. Sure, a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, it's great that this is the Association of Washington School Principals because leadership, I think, is at the core of so much of this. And we've maybe talked around that, but we haven't really gone right to it. And the fact that there are schools that I've been able to travel to and film in that are incredibly poor schools. I was in a school in Mississippi filming and it was 100% free and reduced lunch, happened to be 100% black as well. I think the family median income in this Mississippi Delta school was $19,000 a year and they were doing incredible inclusion. They were differentiating their instruction, they were doing positive behavioral supports, universal design for learning, you know, peers, station teaching. And it was largely because of that principle. That principle had set a tone that this is the way we do things. Every single kid in our community deserves to learn together. We know that this is gonna benefit the kids with disabilities and the kids without disabilities to be working alongside each other. So I think that, you know, how do we make that happen? How do we do mindship? One huge way is by showing leadership from the top, from principals, superintendents, special ed directors who set the tone. And, and I've talked to a lot of teachers around the country that are struggling because their leaders don't support inclusion. And I acknowledge that's a really tough road to hoe to try and work up from the bottom. I mean, you can still affect your classroom and that's important, but if you don't have that support from the top, it's difficult. And, and I use the example of Mississippi to say, certainly education needs money, but money I don't think is the most important thing. It's leadership and it's attitude and it's cultural. It's the culture that you establish within a school. So power, more power to you, all those principals out there that are doing that hard work because it is hard work, and, and, but it's absolutely critical to making this all place. I would say that um, people hear different things, people relate to different things. So the arts, I use Dan Habib's film all the time um, to show people what it could look like, you know, how to see this vision. So I think the arts is important, but in Dan's film, he uses a lot of research. And so the research that Alfredo does is hugely important. And then we have, you know, Lederick and Keith, who are people who are just showing, you know, who they are, poets and activists. And I think you change people's mindsets by a bunch of different ways, just not one way. I think it's important to say we all need each other. We all need all of this. Um, but I do think it's important to start with a vision. When I was in New York City, we went around, it was, there were 1700 principals, 1700 schools. And we went around in groups of 25, and talk to every single principal about thinking about special ed differently. And then with Dan and Lederick actually, then we went to talk to the parents in all five boroughs to think about looking at special ed differently. So I think, I think there are many different ways. Um, you need symbolism, you need structures, you need you know, to teach people how to teach. 
you need to understand the politics, you need all of that. Um, I would also speak about one specific piece of that. In schools, I'm hearing a lot of talk about co-teaching. And in a lot of places I'm seeing two teachers in the classroom, one in the back with the kids with disabilities, one in the front teaching. And it looks the same. So I want to start thinking again, how to think differently. How do we co-serve kids? How do we all you know, own all the kids? How do we all support all students? So I would start with co-serving. Then I would start with planning together, you know, co-planning, then get to co-teaching. Um, so I want, I mean, there, there, there are tricks, there are things to do, but I think the biggest thing is don't just do one thing and think of the whole person and think of how different people hear different things and how we all need each other to do this. Wow. I, I don't know what to say except really wow at this moment. Um, you know, the words, the conversation today has been so rich um, and comprehensive. And I think it's gonna, we will have this recorded. We've had multiple people ask. It will be available on our website for you to go back and rethink and hear again, um, just this powerful conversation from all of our panelists. And so I just wanna say, we appreciate and thank all of you um, who've joined us today, uh, whether you were on the panel at, or just sitting alongside and listening to these wonderful conversations. Um, and uh, we just are excited about this collective walk in supporting inclusion and inclusionary practices. You're in the field doing the work, doing the heavy lifting and just keep on lifting and we appreciate all that you're doing. Um, it's just been a joy to be with you all today. And um, we thank you again, all of you for the work that you're doing in the field. Um, and we'd also like to acknowledge and thank OSPI for making this free professional learning series um, possible with funding through the Inclusionary Projects grant. Um, and again, thank you all for joining us today. Uh, this was a really powerful time to think about um, and push on not just what we know about the past, but also revisioning and thinking about what can we do, what actions should we take to um, build that futurity um, and really make some systems shifts and changes. So thank you again today. Want some support with your inclusionary practices work? Head to our website, awsp.org, where you will find a ton of resources, many of which were talked about in this podcast. You will find on-demand courses, videos to watch with your staff, workshops, articles, podcasts, and more. Can't find what you're looking for? Please reach out to us and we'll be happy to help. How about some professional learning that's relevant and fun? At AWSP, we believe adult learning should be fun and engaging, just like it should be for the students in your building. We promise to never deliver death by PowerPoint and bore you with sit and get learning. You know, a good friend of mine said, professional learning equals self-care. And self-care, that's how you get your power back. So at AWSP, we are all about supporting you and partnering with you on your professional leadership development. You know, one size doesn't fit all. So we provide a number of different ways for principals, assistant principals to stay sharp and improve their skills. We offer content for interns, assistant principals, and principals in all stages of their career. We do that in person when we can, and of course, online. From our cohort-based launching school leadership and building effective leadership networks to our video workshops, we've got something bound to be right up your alley. Visit our website for more information on engaging and dynamic professional learning.
This series has been made possible through a generous grant from the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction Inclusionary Practices Project. We hope you've enjoyed this special podcast series on inclusionary practices for the school leader. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. To catch all of our episodes, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can watch AWSB TV and our other great video content. If you have ideas for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, shoot me an email at david at awsp.org. We'll do our best to make it happen. On behalf for all of us at AWSP, we hope you tune in again. Keep up the great work for kids, and we'll see you next time.